Read along with me. We are in chapter 7. We start in verse 1. If you would, please. And it says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what measure or judgment you judge, you will be judged. Kind of get the key word there. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, there's a plank in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open, or it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. What man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who was in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We'll read through the rest of the chapter just to kind of get the, the gravity of the whole thing, but we'll only zoom in on those twelve. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Oh, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. And every bad tree bears bad fruit. You cannot, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these things. But the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, in these next 45 minutes, it is my heart's desire that we would hear your word, not mine. That we would hear your heart, not mine. That you would minister profoundly. That you would do perfectly, supernaturally, magnanimously, greater and beyond anything we could have imagined, Lord. In this time, as you start to build this beautiful core to reach the rest of the world, transform us. And we give you permission. We give you open license to do everything that you would want to do here. So teach, transform, instruct, correct, rebuke, save. Lord, our hearts and our minds are open. Our ears are open. Now speak to us, we pray. So come upon me, Lord. Immerse me that you would be seen and come upon me so that you would use me as a vessel now. As I step out of your way, Lord, do your work. And I thank you. I thank you for the work what you're about to do now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible always be your authority. I laid awake last night. It was one of those nights where, you know, it's, you think, ah, oh, it's going to be early. You know, I mean, you start counting back from about 10 p.m. You start counting back and thinking, I'm going to get that extra hour. That's kind of nice. 
And after a beautiful talk with my beautiful wife, I thought I was going to settle into a nice night's sleep and decided my body had other plans. And I think the Lord did as well. Somewhere in the middle of the night, I'm downstairs at this point, making myself some kind of tea and just trying to tell my face to shut up and all that stuff. And I'm sitting there and I just get this moment and I sit in the dark. And I kind of I remember sitting on this hill on several occasions when we've gone to Israel. We've been there many times now. And sitting on this hill and overlooking this big, open, vast plain. And wondering what it would be like. I mean, of course, from the perspective you sit, you're kind of almost sort of looking through the lens of Jesus. But what would it be like to be one of the others? I mean, according to the end of Matthew 4, it would be a room full of people that we were addicted, we were possessed, we were paralyzed, we were powerless, we were emotional basket cases, we were everything weak. We were the discarded that have now become disciples. And we know what it's like. We would be the most familiar with that disappointing look from somebody that loves you, you know, that has that look like, and I had so much greater plans for you than this. You know, that look like, you know, I don't know how many of you have ever heard those words like you just really aren't remotely reaching your potential. Or worse yet, you're going the opposite. But to drop that down a couple on the totem pole to that place now where you're kind of out of control and people kind of step out of your way. They know to avoid you. They know to avoid you because you're kind of trouble. And you go beyond that to the place where people no longer hide that. The, the stranger no longer hides their disdain. They, they, they look with contempt at you. Because clearly, whatever horrible position you're in, you must have earned, right? And so they look and they see you there begging for money, your cup out. And they look and they think whatever disease, whatever shortcoming, of course, half of the world probably thinks that you're probably, or more, probably thinks you're just there. You're not really hurt at all just like we would think when we walk by a lot of these people. And the others in this particular religious society on the other side of that, they know how to condemn. They know judgment. And we know it well. We know to be the receiving end of it. I mean, and, and it doesn't take long for us to stay in that position, for us to convince ourselves that they're right. That clearly we've earned this. Clearly, if we had just done or been or whatever, better. Clearly in a situation like that, well... You know, surely we, we would have been in a better situation than we're in. But somewhere down the line, someone loved us. And it was not who we would have thought. It was not some guy that was in a sort of a lame coat and a rich suit pulling up in his Bentley, kind of Mr. Daddy Warbucks popping off cash to everyone. It was just a fisherman. It was just, a, it was just an average Joe. You know, it was somebody that knows smell, somebody that knows how to gut fish, somebody that knows how to to talk colorfully in front of other crowds. and Someone that, that kind of knows what back alleys look like and knows how to get their way home in certain places and has friends in really low places. And there's fishermen and there's tax collectors that will be brought in to this fold of Jesus. And they, they kind of come and they, they, their, their philosophy was really, really simple. It was just, if I could get you to Jesus, he could really fix you. I don't have to know how bad your problem is. I don't even have to know what your problem is. Because uh, I'm not the doctor. I'm, I'm not even really the nurse. I'm just really the gurney. I'm just the person getting you there. And if I can get you there. Of course, the moment that such a fisherman who's fishing and you don't realize at that moment you're the fish uh, is pulling you in. They're going to have to see the. Well, the people who have declared themselves your enemy are going to become their enemy. The people who have looked down on you with disdain and anger and angst now are going to look at you that same way. But they somehow seem to have loved you more than they cared about what these people thought. And they got you to Jesus. And when they got you to Jesus, Jesus asked simply for permission. Can I transform you? That's what he's asking. And you said yes. I assume you said yes. If you haven't, I'll give you that chance before we're done. And when you said yes, you gave Jesus a chance to take the wrecking ball out and take down everything you knew. 
all the things that you hated about yourself that you were glad to let the Lord set on fire and all the things, to be honest, that really weren't that you kind of thought were really cool, that kind of accelerated you in your community. The things, by the way, you're aware of now that you've since you've walked with the Lord for a while, that you've tried to rebuild since coming to Christ because somehow you really want to kind of get a little of that back, a little of that action. And we're all gathered together now and we're sitting around, around other people much like ourselves, probably knew most of ourselves. But, you know, we probably knew from back alleys and drug dens and crack houses and, you know, counseling meetings and probation hearings and, you know, in those places where we might hang out before this point. So we kind of look around and you can see that and you kind of look and occasionally what you see is that solicitor and, you know, criminal both in the same room. And you kind of look and you're like, wow. Who in the world are we now? Well, this whole message, chapters 5 through 7, I remind you, is really that. It really is. The, well, now that you are mine, Jesus speaking, let's get some things straight. Because of where we've come from and we've known what it's like to be condemned, because we know what it's like, like for decent people to look at us with disgust and disappointment. We know that feeling and we know how much it hurts. So the concept of really embracing that we're blessed is really a discipline. I mean, let's be honest, isn't it? I mean, it really is a discipline to really embrace the fact that we are blessed people. Not just saved, horrible, nasty people. It's like we went from Jack the Ripper to Jack the Redeemed, but we're still Jack the somewhere in all that. And then as I try to embrace that, I, and I realize that once I grasp that I really am blessed because of this relationship. And it only, the only reason, the only reason why I'm blessed is because of this relationship with Jesus. There's no other. That's really the basis for it. Then he says, well, now let me start showing you how you relate to everyone else. How you relate to God. How you are to you, you're blessed. How you are to God, you're salt. How you are to the rest of the world, you're light. That's just the way that works. And that will, in essence, frame the rest of the whole message. If I can really resolve then who I am to God and then resolve who I am to me, well, then I must then start to rebuild my view of others. Here's the problem. I really kind of have two categories, if you think about it. <clears throat> the really desperate wanting of approval, but lying about it. Well, I wouldn't really like them anyways, but really I want to be approved by them. But since I'm confident that they won't approve me, I might as well just condemn them. And the people that are around me that uh, really I'd rather condemn anyways. I mean, so the strange part is, is even though I know how hard it, how much it hurts to be condemned, how quickly I can do the same. And so what Jesus does is he starts tearing that apart. And really, that's where we get into our text as well. Now, as we head into seven, he talks about what it really means to not live for approval of man, because it's a very anti-Christian mindset. All the giving and the praying and the fasting to be seen by men is really, if you think about it, it's false righteousness. It's, it's in essence, it's a performance on the outside. And because of that, it's not for the father. It's for other people's favor. And he gets down to the motivation. And the motivation really is where my treasure is, what's really important. But if what's really important is my relationship with the father first, because that's where everything changed, is that relationship I got through Jesus Christ. Well, then the second most important thing becomes my that becomes your relationship with with God. That becomes the second most important thing. If what's really important to me is being right with God, then the moment I'm right with God, I start to feel like him. And the moment I start to feel like him, I get the most important thing. Then is you being right with God after that. So my purpose isn't to to please people and we can't be to condemn them either. So on one side, I could live for everyone's applause, but I'll never really want to see them right with God because of that. I'll just want to make sure that they think I'm awesome. On the other side of them, I'm quick to condemn them because I'm really tired of fighting their, their disdain. And that balance between trying to justify myself and judging others really is the place where I become a blessing. And that's where we're at in this. Everything transforms the moment that Jesus was granted license to transform me because first, again, my relationship with him becomes the key. And then the second is your relationship so Jesus, in light of that, turns now to a group of people who know how bad it feels to be condemned. And he turns and says, now that you are not what you were, don't you dare do what happened to you. Judge not. Now, there are different words for judge. This is a simple word. The word is krino. Krino, by the way, is, is a very, very common word. It is the word that is used, interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. So he's already introduced the word prior to this. 
When, it's when someone sues you for your coat, give me your shirt as well. Give me your shirt, give me your coat as well. There's the word sue, interestingly enough. In John 3.17, the text right after our favorite verse, if you will, it says that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And there's our word again, crino. But you're probably aware of the fact, if you've ever walked with people long enough that have kind of walked with the Lord, but now aren't really walking with the Lord, that there is sort of a backslider's guide to the galaxy. It's a, it's a handbook, and it's got a handful of verses in it. And of course, Matthew 7.1 is one of the slogan verses, judge not lest you be judged. So you try to approach somebody on an issue. And you can tell an awful lot by a person by when you approach them in gentleness and love and say, here's an issue this needs to be dealt with and how they respond. If their response is one that open fires back at you when your heart really is to love and serve them, be careful because you'll see here in a moment what happens. And normally when that happens, this is the verse that flies out of the mouth. Don't you dare judge me because you know judge not lest you be judged. Interesting, there are other verses that, of course, are in that handbook, 1 Timothy 5.23, about, you know, have a little wine for your stomach's sake, 1 Corinthians 10, about all things are lawful for me and I become all things to all men. You know, of course, they don't look at the parts that I might win some. You know, 1 Timothy 6.17, where it gives us everything richly for us to enjoy. And, of course, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty, 2 Corinthians 3.17. So, you know, we'll use these verses. Oh, there's liberty. I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me anyways. And, of course... <clears throat> these verses and anything that involves the word hypocrite are going to be thrown out at you in a moment when what you're really trying to do is help. Now, please, please hear me. If my heart is first to have a right relationship with God, that's the most important thing, and then the second is your right relationship with God, my approaching you or someone approaching you would be for that purpose, if that's really their heart. And if that is their heart, and the attitude is, don't you dare judge me, the question is, are we condemning or are we helping? Now, understand, before anyone just kind of takes that thing, sits on it and builds a house on it, we need to recognize the rest of the chapter. And this is why we read the whole chapter. In this whole chapter, by the way, notice, by the way, there are also listed in this chapter dogs, swine, false prophets, ravenous wolves, bad trees and lawless people. Of which we're supposed to be aware of. So how can I not judge, but still nail a dog? How can I not judge and still beware of a swine, or a false prophet, or a ravenous wolf, or a bad tree, or a lawless individual? Clearly, it isn't just that I cannot discern. And that's the important part about it. Now listen, putting a balance to it. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us to test the spirits. Going beyond that, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us to test all things. So we are not to be without discernment or discretion. Maverick, the word test, and it's a great word, is the word tokamazete. It's literally a money weigher. It's somebody who doesn't just look at a coin at face value and assume it's worth what it is. He puts it with a tried and true weight on the other side to make sure it balances out. The tried and true weight, of course, is the word of God. And that's what we do with everything. Like I said, don't just believe me. Test all things. Test. All things by the word of God. It's tried and true on this side. Put whatever you are on the other side and see if it balances out. You know, what's amazing. People will happily do that in here, but won't do that to the gossip they hear. They won't do that to the news that they read or the Internet article that they just took a look at. Interesting, though, it's like, oh, it's in church. I have to be really careful whether it's true or not. But on the other side of it, I'm pretty sure that that article about God and Time magazine must be 100 percent accurate because it's Time magazine. When did that become the end of all truth? When did the Bible get replaced by Wikipedia? And we get this attitude here in this chapter that the issue is not to build our case against and condemn. That's what the word means. But that doesn't mean we don't approach someone. Now, please hear me in this. If our heart is to restore, you can't have restoration without repentance. There's the problem. A person that the problem is between him and his wife is he's been drinking and sleeping with other girls. And you want and the guy wants to be restored to his wife because he's not really happy that his wife's angry at him. She has a good right to be angry at him. And he's like, come on, she should just want to be restored. It's like repentance is necessary for restoration. He's going to I mean, it starts with him stopping drinking and stopping sleeping around. Why in the world would she want to be restored to a guy that's continuing in that behavior? 
But try to tell the guy that sometimes. Try to tell the person who's deep in their sin, who's lost that objectivity, you need to stop this and not just stop it, you need to get far from it. And the attitude is, whether they'll quote the verse or not, who are you to judge? Interesting, because Jesus goes straight from that text with the plank eye to dogs and swine. Did you notice that? Either Jesus is being bipolar, which I would not say is true here or anywhere. Or what's true is is that Jesus is showing us that though we are not called to judge, we are called to discern. And we are called to be careful. On this chapter, he's telling us to beware beware of false prophets. And for to beware, which means take a careful consideration, we have to be able to identify that. He tells us we have to identify dogs and and swine because if we don't do that, we're going to throw pearls to them. And it isn't just that we're going to lose the pearls. We're going to be torn to shreds too. That's what happens. But this is where he starts. And I love that he starts even with humor here, if you will. But first this. Do not. And I remind you, look at the group of people he's talking to. People who know how, how... much it hurts to be condemned. Who knows <coughs> what it's like to be on the butt end of an angry look. A condemning, disgraceful, shunning look. He goes, Don't, you know how that hurts. Do not build your case and condemn another individual. That is not what you're to do. What that does is two things. One is, it shows no heart for restoration and the second is, it puts yourself above them. You become, and by the, word, by the virtue of the word, you become the standard for which then that person falls short. Not Jesus. And the moment I say, well, I'm awesome and you're not, so you're the problem. And it, let's be honest. How many others than me in this room naturally have a court case in my head? Well, in my head, it's just me. But for you, you may have one in yours. You know, where someone does something wrong, and you can actually play the scene 15 different ways. You always win in the scene, right? But you're presenting the evidence, and they're humiliated, and you're kind of the... I mean, is there anyone in here? Am I I being too transparent for Britain? I mean, let's just be honest here, where it's like, oh, man, they did that, and you're in, oh, and if I could just really not tell them, and I'm thinking, and oh, and oh, and there's this, and there's that. Well, listen, (coughs) Jesus is saying this is the problem. Because the moment you do that... You're not, I mean, you're kind of the judge and the prosecutor, and that's actually not a fair trial. And you know what happens? The moment that that festers, then what we actually do is we try to gather other people to become evidence, though they weren't there. And we'll start going, oh, well, you know, I'm so angry and I'm so disgruntled and I'm so unhappy. and We'll pull them into the situation. You, and it's like what we're trying to do is we're trying to invite them into the court case in our head. Because if they were actually the jury or they were just audience in the courtroom, they would all be applauding what I'm saying because look at how great of a case I presented. But how does that bring anyone closer to Jesus? What it does is it pulls every person you've invited away from Jesus to do that. And it takes the person you are approaching and then it shows no interest in their walk with God. All it shows is you've been burned. Do you remember David in the Old Testament? King. Well, there are definitely moments where David shows great godly wisdom. And there are other moments where David is a man easier for us to relate to. And there are two specifically. I mean, one there's kind of a hint of, and the gal's name is Abigail. David and his men were kind of a traveling band of raiders. And as they were... <clears throat> they, they were shepherds would kind of come by and they would kind of surround the shepherds to protect them. They were, in essence, they were kind of like benevolent hell's angels. They were kind of the bikers that decided to be bodyguards for a group of people. That was kind of the idea. So you can imagine, it would be a little nerve-wracking at first. And, and it didn't seem like David did it for pay or anything like that, but one day David kind of comes by and he's running from Saul. He's running for his life. He's got his band of raiders with him. And he sees the guy that had is shearing his sheep. And he recognizes at that moment that he's going to go and he's going to ask a favor. He's like, hey, you know, yeah, I know you didn't ask it, but we guarded your your sheep. We protected your guys during this whole time. You know, my guys are really hungry. Could you throw a couple lambs our way? And the guy basically disses him. He's like, who does he think he is? There's a lot of guys who run from their master. This guy, like, you you have no pull. Just get away from me, Junior. And David is upset. And the reason David is upset is because his honor has been infringed upon. Someone stepped on his toes. And as a result of that, David gets his guys and he's going to go kill this guy because, because David was going to defend himself, not God. It wasn't God's cause, it was his. 
By God's grace, he doesn't have to. Abigail, the guy really was a jerk. There's no doubt about it. Even his wife said that, which I, ladies, I'm not saying that that's in any way good counsel. But she kind of throws it and she goes, hey, his name's Nabal, which means jerk or fool. I mean, he's just kind of living up to his name. I mean, what kind of person names their kid jerk, right? You know, he's just being who he is. And, you know, and ultimately what happens is the guy, you know, she goes and she prepares all this food. She throws it before David. Please don't kill our family. Really, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so David is appeased. He's like, good, because I would have killed everyone. Probably would have killed you because you're part of the family. And ultimately what happens is she goes back. The guy hears about it and goes into a coma. And then ultimately winds up dying. And then she's kind of, by the way, you don't ever read that Abigail really spends a tremendous amount of time grieving over the loss of her husband there. Uh, And then David marries her. She becomes one of his wives. David really had lost perspective for a moment. He got so caught up in this own personal offense that he really couldn't see straight. And a second situation with David, <coughs> excuse me, by the way, David, of course, sees another girl. He's supposed to be out in battle. He's not in battle. It's spring when kings go to battle. And the Bible makes really clear it's spring when kings go to battle. Now let's look at David. Oh, David's at his house watching TV. You can kind of get the idea from the setting something's not right. And again, this is a loose paraphrase. You're kind of aware that I'm, con- I'm contextualizing. But, uh, but in all of that, ultimately what happens is David kind of looks out and his bodyguard's wife is bathing on the roof. And of course, people are instantly going, hussy, what's this girl doing bathing on the roof? Well, first of all, in that kind of weather, you understand it's the only place where you're going to get the water hot. But also, the, everyone's supposed to be out to battle. Her husband is out to battle. All of the men should be out to battle. The last place you'd expect to see somebody in the house would be the king. He's supposed to be leading everyone to battle. Now, with all of that said, he kind of looks out and he sees her bathing and he looks at his, his, his workers, his servants, and says, get her for me. And no one says anything. They get her. She becomes pregnant. Yeah, it just gets worse by the moment. And David now is really stuck with a crazy situation because his chief counselor, it's his granddaughter. His bodyguard, it's his wife. And her name is Daughter of a Covenant. That's strike three for me. I mean, any one of those would be too much. Well, with all of that said, now he's like, okay, well, she's pregnant. What do we do? I know what we'll do. We'll get her husband back. And we get her husband back. We'll try to get a situation now where he can sleep with her. And we'll just try to pretend like it's okay. It kind of looks like me, whatever. But it's going, you know, hey, congratulations. But the guy, it's amazing. He's so noble that he actually turns to the king. And, he, and though he spends the night, he doesn't even spend the night in his bed. He spends the night at the door of his house. And he looks at David and he says, how can I sleep with my wife while the men are in battle? And I wonder if David thought, well, I did. You know, but in, and in that, it's like he's just too noble. David gets him drunk and he still won't do it. So now David's stuck with this guy that's too darn noble for his own good, in David's opinion. So he sends him out onto the battlefront and sends his death note. The guy is so noble, he even carries it. He doesn't read the mail. And he carries it to the commander and the commander and says, go to the hottest part in battle and just at that moment, step back and let this guy get drilled till he dies. And so he does. So David now is, in essence, impregnated. He's committed adultery. He's impregnated the woman. And now he's guilty of murdering her husband. Then what does he do? He tries to look like a good guy. This is like a Shakespeare play, isn't it? And so ultimately what happens is he marries her. Oh, this poor pregnant girl. Maybe, you know, hey, I heard this rumor. And you, I wonder if he starts to say things like, you know, I heard this rumor that if you marry a girl and she's pregnant, the child will start looking more like you. I, anyways, you know, and uh, I mean, you can see how he, you know, you kind of play those goofy things out. Ultimately, <coughs> God, um, David, by the way, at this point, remember, his servants have never said no. The servants have never said anything. And finally, David, what we read, by the way, in the Psalms, where you read his heart, he says, when I remained silent, my bones grew old. My vitality dried up like the drought of summer. David, this vivacious, this vim and vigor kind of guy, turned into this old sickly thing because this sin was still in his heart. So... God out of love, listen, 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 God out of love sends a prophet to him, to rebuke him. See, God could have actually had no one approach him, but if no one approached him, David could have kept this thing secret his whole life. But in doing so, David would have died early and miserably because of it. But it's going to be more than just kind of nailing David on this. It's going to be showing him his heart. 
So the prophet comes in, if you will, and he kind of has sort of a sock puppet presentation. Again, contextualizing. And he goes, let me just kind of show you the situation. There were these two guys. And then this guy, this guy was really rich. We're going to call him Richie Rich. And Richie Rich is over here, and he's got lots of lambs over here. And this guy over here, we would call him Perry Poor. And Perry Poor had one lamb, and it was a pet. He called him sheepy, fluffy, whatever. And they would come in the house at night, had a little, you know, he like had a, a jumper that he would put on. And in the winter, he had a cool little collar, and he had his own bowl. You know, that kind of thing, right? And they said, those sheep bed for it, you know, little fluffy over here. And so this rich guy, Richie Rich over here, has, you know, with everyone, has all this stuff. Some guy comes out and visits him. So I'm going, hey, Richie Rich, how's he going? He's like, oh, well, I should probably make dinner. So Richie Rich comes over here and takes little fluffy and makes little fluffy lamb chops out of it. And I mean, what's amazing to me is how David erupts over this little sock puppet story. I mean, it's a, it, granted, it's sheep rustling, but I mean, it isn't like David goes, wow, that's a really terrible story. Wow, you know, they should really do something about that guy. David gets furious over this story. And he whips and he goes, that guy should die. He should get the full arm of the law. I mean, he's freaking out. But understand what Nathaniel did, Nathaniel the prophet, what he did is he kind of danced over and he just kind of touched that nerve for a second. Touched that nerve and David flew out. And you know how that is when somebody's unrepentant and they're kind of trying to hide it and trying to make it look like everything's cool. And someone kind of comes over and kind of touches that little spot and then they turn into the Hulk on you. You ever, you ever see that? And you're like, whoa, whoa, what did I do? Well, well, in that, he says you should pay the full fold. Now, understand, Levitical law says that when you steal from someone, you have to pay fourfold back. Wouldn't that be a great law here? Think about how much we'd be getting back for what everyone stole from the church. Well, <clears throat> so then the, then the prophet has to look and go, well, here's the problem, David. Um, you're in the story. But unfortunately, you're not very poor. You're rich, you're rich. Because you realize, God's like, I gave you everything. Why did you have to take that poor guy's wife? You know, it's like, that wasn't yours and it wasn't supposed to be yours. And David at that moment has a change of heart. But it's because of that David's vitality will return. He went from being merciful to me to how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. But sins aren't forgiven when you're hiding them. It tells us whoever seeks to hide their sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. Confesses it and forsakes it. David had a terrible problem. And his terrible problem was is that David had a plank but he was calling a speck a mountain. Well, it was still a bad sin, stealing that guy's sheep. But it was nothing like taking a human being. In Romans chapter 2, after talking about the downward spiral of people who are unrepentant towards God and unreceiving of him, they says then, as a result of that, he says, well, and you, what, you, you guys that are like big law people and all that, he says, you guys realize you're even worse because you who condemn people for doing those things, you do them too. And there's the problem. I understand why in, in James 3.1, it tells us, by the way, that teachers receive a greater condemnation, a greater judgment. Because we're always declaring things are wrong. <laughs> but for everything that I declare up here, and I know that my family can tell you, man, I'm on my knees going, God, don't let this be me. So Jesus turns and he says, listen. There's no place in your heart to create judge and jury and condemn somebody. There's no place in your heart for that. There should be no place. This is not acceptable. So my question is, is there for you right now? Is there someone in your heart right now that you've built that whole thing? You've kind of created it. You've done judge and jury at this point. Hey, I'm not even telling you that, they, that you might not even have a legitimate case. You might have a legitimate case. But is your heart just simply to show them that you are right? Or is your heart to reconcile them to the living God? What's really the point here? If all we're really trying to do is condemn people, well, then you can guess where that's going to go. So here as we walk through this, listen. But, you know, I don't really think we should even go farther without praying. Do you know what I'm saying? Because right now, if the Lord's working on your heart and just kind of telling you that there's somebody that you're banging on in your head, and every time you think of them, you can't think straight. You can't judge properly. You can't look at the other things. And everything has been jaded by the color of that. 
Hey, I'm not telling you that that person's repentance or doing anything decent anymore has even changed. But I've learned this. That that same anger could turn to compassion. When it turns to compassion and you still see them doing stupid things, your heart breaks more for them because what you're saying is, oh man, you don't even realize how you're hurting yourself and others. Now look at it as a father, as a pastor, I get angry. I get angry when I see sheep get hurt. I get angry when anything threatens my family, be it church family or my own maternal family. But I could, it's weird because I could be angry at a person I could be compassionate at. Jesus says there's no right to judge. You know what it's like to be condemned. You were dragged here. Now what are you going to do? So let's pray and then we'll move on to the rest of the text. Lord, I do pray that if there be anyone in this room, or myself included, where every time I think of someone, that my, it goes immediately to this place of of the courtroom scene in my heart or head. What I'm doing is I'm trying to just play it out so that somehow they could be humiliated and I could be proven that I'm right. Just wash that from me. Forgive us of those things. And make us people, Lord, that look like you. You are so constantly seeking to restore even the rebellious. Help us to see that in the heart of a restorer, in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brothers, by the way, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if anyone thinks that he's something, well, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. There's a balance there. It's like, look, you see somebody that's really struggling, go after him. Gently, firmly, but with a heart to restore. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll want to be restored. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) But in all of that, you want to definitely, so you definitely want to be at a place where you're looking at your own thing and going, because you know they're going to fire at you. You don't want to give them any ammunition. But don't let that keep you from wanting to reach out to someone. You know, in the book of Isaiah, second largest book in the Bible, if you will, God says this in Proverbs, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 65 too, I have stretched out my hands all day to a, all day long to a rebellious people. They walk in a way that's not good according to their own thoughts. God had walked us through starting in Isaiah 5 how miserable life gets when you're running from them. And in every step they take, it is only met with greater grief. And in Isaiah, this refrain is used five different times. 525, 9.12, 9.17, 9.21, 10.4. Where it says, For in all of this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And you know what it's like. It's almost driving under the influence. It's almost a pregnancy. It's almost a serious fight. It's almost a life-threatening injury. And you walk away from it, and one of two things happens. Your behavior changes, or you think you're invincible. And then it gets worse. Then you're sitting in a courtroom, or you're figuring out how you're going to get out of this disease. You've lost your respect for yourself, your friends, whatever it is. And you see it, and all of a sudden you get to this place where you just start shaking your fist at everything, and you're just like, you know, the problem's everyone, not me. And you can't see in that moment because of that, that God's still holding out his hand and going, man, I would really like to pull you from all of this. I really would like to see you rescued. But you're probably aware that proud people don't get rescued. Proud people just keep swimming and try to swim until they die. I worked as a lifeguard for a whole summer when I was a kid. And as a lifeguard, we recognize that you can't just jump in and try to save someone without them being willing to let you. And they have to surrender to you to rescue you, for you to rescue them, because otherwise they'll fight you and they'll drag you down and you'll both drown. And there have been twice where I would jump in the water with a person. 
where the person was so freaked out and wasn't willing to really receive, trust my and receive my help. I was a kid, so I understand. In one case, we watched a guy had to get knocked out because he was drowning his wife. He was holding on to her because he was just didn't want to die and he had no clue he was drowning. So they had to knock him out. And in the knocking him out, they were able to pull him and her to safety. They're both, of course, the only problem he had, of course, once that was done, is he had to deal with his wife who was completely awake while he was drowning her. Anyway. And Jesus gives us this particular metaphor in between. He says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, there's a plank in your own? Hypocrite. First remove the speck from your own eye and then you will see clearly enough. I'm sorry, remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Did you notice, first of all, that he doesn't say don't want to see your brother's speck removed? He doesn't say you don't have a right to say, let me help you with that speck. That's not the point. The issue is how quickly we think that everyone else has a plank and we have a speck. It's, I can look at my own sin like a speck and look at everyone else's like a plank and he's like, you have that backwards. When you look at the speck, the word there is to take careful note of. It's the word blepo. When you look at the word to consider the plank in your own eye, that word's to take careful note of. And I get it. You're really, or think according to, and I guess you're like really busy inspecting everybody else's problems. But you really don't even take some time to really sit down and just kind of lay your own things and go, okay, this needs to be dealt with first. And it really is kind of a funny story. We recognize that. But it's understand, first of all, in Matthew 13, 55, when Jesus is speaking, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, don't we know James, Joe, Simon, Joseph? I mean, don't we know Judas? Don't we know his four brothers and his sisters, plural? Which tells me that Jesus had at least a six-pack of siblings. The carpenter's son. Technon, the word, by the way. It's the word that means builder. Primary, by the way, means arche, like the one in front. So a person that's a primary builder, or a first builder, is an architecton, or an architect. That's where we get the word from. So his dad, from which then Jesus would follow in the trade, was a builder. Joe, the builder. Yes, he can. Now, whether he was a woodworker, and the reason we call him a carpenter, because we've contextualized it into the time when we were writing, and of course in the days of the 1600s, that made perfect sense to us that such a builder would be a carpenter. <clears throat> were there carpenters in those days? Certainly, there were. Here's the problem. Carpenters were actually much more of a rich man's commodity than they were a poor man's builder. Stonemasons were, by the way, because the one thing that grows abundantly in Israel to this day is rock. They grow rock really well there, and there's no shortage of it. Well, trees, on the other hand, well, there were times, many times, by the way, throughout the history of Israel, where you'd be taxed for your trees, so they would cut them all down. I mean, there were certain reasons why enemies would come in, they would cut down all your trees. So it wasn't like there was, that wood was as plentiful. And when something's a little bit more rare, it becomes kind of a status symbol. <coughs> Excuse me. So... When it came to, let's just say that Joseph was, his dad, was a, his stepdad, was a carpenter. What, what was wood used for? Well, it was primarily two things. One was sort of, if you will, press planks. Uh, to, to be able to, to press in to make olive oil, for instance. They would take these, you know, they'd pick the olives, they'd put them in these round baskets, and they would pile them up one upon another, and then there would be this really long plank, very much like a telephone pole that was held by levers, weights on one side and so forth. And what would happen then is that that plank then would have these heavy weights on the other. And what would happen is as they dropped that down, the heavy weights would crush the olives and would create the olive oil. Well, that makes sense. Now, how gifted of a person do you have to be to be able to help basically plank a plank? Well, it just has to be basically strong and straight. But the real gifted carpenter, by the way, would be somebody that would be doing ornamental stuff. Like, for instance, on synagogues and on government buildings. I mean, they would do stuff that was so careful and ornate. You know, can you remember that stuff? You kind of go to an antique place. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not 110, though there are times where I feel like that. Um, but, you know, my wife and I will walk to some place, and we'll see, like, antiques, and you see those stuff, and it's like, today it's like, oh, wow, that's nice. They put a ridge on that, you know, or whatever, or they put a metal strip. But in those days, it was like somebody spent 45 hours carving, like, this little 
you know, scenery thing into the wood. You guys know what I'm talking about? On a desk or on a, a whatever. And you kind of look at that. And, and I'm not, I guess I'm old enough now to look and really appreciate the work that went into making something that beautiful. And when I look at that, I think about what it was like when wood wasn't plentiful. And so you would get it on the front of your door, you know, if you were wealthy. You know, you would get it in places that were fairly wealthy. Now, needless to say, that kind of thing, that's kind of big money work. Now, in any form of trade, a guy that enters would be called an apprentice. You're aware of that from the television show. But on the other side of it, the person that's at the other end is called a journeyman or an expert. So, let's say the dad's the expert. You would hope that's the case. His son, I'm, I'm going to you know, use Mike here as, a, as an example. The son is the apprentice. Now, we are going to be working with wood today. And I'm going to be training him. Well, what's the first thing I'm going to train him on? Something crude and simple. Well, what would be crude and simple? Mike, son, I'm going to teach you how to make a press plank. So what's he doing? So we're in a smaller room. He's got this big old honking log. And he's got this big old plane. And he's going to... Because right? he's just trying to make it so that it's round enough and it's straight enough so you can use it. But I'm like, whatever you do, don't go crazy. I want you to go, you know... Long, smooth strokes, right? That's, you know, that kind of thing. On the other side of it, let's say I'm over here, and I'm kind of next to him so I can keep my eye on him, but I'm over here, and I'm working on something really careful. I'm kind of working on something really ornate. So what I'm doing is I'm putting off these little shavings and these little pieces of dust. That's what I'm putting in. He, on the other hand, over here, he's going to go in, and he's just kind of looking at things. He's kind of staring at it. He's kind of looking at it, just trying to keep it straight. And as long as the apprentice is basically being a decent kid, chances are there's not going to be a problem. But having worked in those carpenter shops in sort of first century reenactments, getting a speck in your eye is actually a fairly common thing. It's just not a common thing for you. It's a common thing for the, the, the journeyman if the apprentice is being a spaz. Because if I'm over here kind of going like this, and he's going, oh, like, and all of a sudden, the thing gets in my eye, I've got a speck in my eye. But if I've got a speck in my eye, him having a plank in his, although just by its basic sense, it's even just funny, you've got like a log sticking out, and you're going to come over this way, I've got a duck. But imagine it's like, it tells us that he's the apprentice. He's the new guy, and he's looking at something really crude and simple, and he's kind of always like, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of that thing. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You really can't take care of it yet. Why don't you deal with what you got to deal with first? I mean, from Jesus' perspective, I could see him drawing from that being raised in a carpenter shop. But we don't even have to get that to get the basic point. And the basic point is, I'm trying to look at your thing and say, your thing is massive. And my thing, what? My thing. My thing's like a freckle. Your thing's like a second or third arm, right? And he's going, no, your thing's like a telephone pole. And they've got a, they've got a piece of sawdust in their eye. But he doesn't say, because you've got a plank in your eye, don't you dare try to help someone else. What they're saying is, deal with your thing, and once you deal with your thing, then you'll actually be able to see clearly, and that's the point. See, when I've got a plank, even when I've got a speck, I can't see clearly. My eyes are terrible by nature. Well, actually, probably by abuse. I've gotten punched in the face a few times. But, <coughs> and what? I fought. Anyways, you guess that by the punch part, right? Anyway, the, the, if you can't see clearly, how are you really helping somebody? It's like, hold on, let me see if I can find your speck. Hold on, I'm kind of looking like this. You know, I mean, I would be like, keep your hands away from my eyes, man. And Jesus is looking and he goes, this is what he's relating. I want to remind you who he's talking to. He's talking to a group of people that were paralyzed, that were possessed, that were emotional basket cases, that were drug addicts, that were fighters, that were crazy, that were, you know, sexually everything. And they're brought into this place. Jesus has revolutionized them. He goes, no, don't you turn around to the same people who condemned you and condemn them because you still got planks to deal with. And if you try to deal with it with a plank in your eye, what you're going to want to do is hit them with it instead of see them restored. And you know how that is. You want to find something wrong in a person because what you really want to do is wallop them with it instead of actually see them restored. And Jesus goes, that is, that's not permissible. That is not the way this works. The way this works is I want you to go first before me and go, God, deplank me. Not just so that I can see clearly, but because somewhere inside of me, the moment I said yes to you, you gave me this desire to see other people made better. And seeing this desire to see other people made better, I recognize just seeing someone made better doesn't mean they're going to get better because they still have a choice in it. 
But even approaching them in that, once that plank is there, I can see clearly enough that when I see clearly enough, I go, can I help you with that speck? You don't seem to be doing real well with that speck right now. It's clearly irritating you. But I can almost see the humor from the people. But a lot of those people would have understood a carpenter shop. The most amazing thing is we'll only get a few more verses. Is then he goes and he says, no, don't give what's holy to dogs. And you go, what? How did it go from that to that? I get the, you know, okay, deal with your plank, help them with their speck. I get that. I get, don't be like judge and jury and be condemning people. Have a heart to restore. Remember, it's an instead of, not just a removal. It's a replacement. The actual thought, instead of condemning, seek to restore. There's the idea. Now, that may not even be a restore to you, but you certainly want to see them restored to God. Sometimes, to be honest, to see a person restored, there has to be removal first. That becomes the problem. And thus, Jesus introduces this. Why does he use those animals? I mean, that's the first thing I thought. Why doesn't he use lions? Why doesn't he use bears or tigers? Oh, my. Why doesn't he use those? Well, first of all, when you think about pigs, one thing's for sure. In a Jewish community, pigs are kind of a no-no. You're kind of aware of that. Matter of fact, in most Middle Eastern communities, in the Muslim world as well. I mean, it's like you really want to threaten a guy that says he's going to blow himself up or whatever. Just say that you're going to go and shove him in a pig's skin when they're done. The, the, the idea of that is just so abhorrent. But it's interesting for those in dogs. Pigs were in the simplest sense, really, to be honest, they were just the untouchables, but they were still outside of the community. You remember that no man's land that Jesus went to where the guy was possessed by a legion of demons? Or at least a demon that called himself legion? Well, in all of that, remind, remember, do you remember where those demons went? They didn't want a herd of swine. And that's one of the reasons we didn't go there as a good Jewish kid. We wouldn't go to a place where they herded swine. We wouldn't go to a place that was full of graveyards or a naked crazy guy. Of course, I mean, I mean that sounds a bit like Camden, but it's still not the kind of place a good Jewish guy goes. And I, I get the idea here. That, that's all, all that stuff's kind of associated. It's kind of like that's Halloweenville, that place over there. And weird enough, the pigs were part of it. But what's interesting about pigs and dogs, by the way, you're probably aware of this. Maybe you're not. Dogs were, in the simplest sense, they weren't cute and cuddly things that you took for walks. They weren't things you kind of snuggled up with. They were, in the simplest sense, and pardon me for its clarity, they were vomit vacuums is what they were. You went and you ate too much, and you threw up, and then you called little Rusty in, and Rusty took care of it, and then you kind of went back to eating again, kind of like the Hunger Games thing, ironically, if you remember that. And the whole point of it was is that that's the way that they view dogs. They were very utilitarian. It wasn't like they were cute and we're just going to kind of put bows on them and get a nice little jumper. And, you know, and they were just basically, they were kind of the, the barf hoover of the day. But the one thing about neither of them by themselves is that they aren't necessarily threatening to look at for the most part. And they may be mangy. I mean, they both have this in common. They're both unclean animals. They're both animals that are naturally drawn to filth and are at home in filth. But what's interesting is, according to this, they also have this in common. And that is that there are things that are pearls. And the thing, these things that are pearls, now think about, Jesus could have used diamonds, he could have used rubies, he could have used, why a pearl? I can't help but think of the fact that a pearl, the way it's made. Do you guys know why a way a pearl is made? A piece of sand gets caught inside this poor mollusk, irritates the heck out of them, and it starts to build, in essence, a callus around the piece of, of sand. The, it's, it's defense. It'd be like you developing a wart, if you will, or, or a blister or something, a callus. That irritation becomes precious. That irritation becomes precious. Now, we have to put it in context. Jesus is not being a jackrabbit. I have to put it all in context. Even the ask, seek, enough thing. And here's the context. Have a heart to restore. Don't condemn. Have a heart to restore. Deal with that plank in your own eye and then help people with their specs. Be a spec saver. But in that, here's the danger. You're going to have pearls. You're going to throw them to some. And you've got to be really careful who you throw them to. Because there are going to be those... Well, what would be the pearls in our context? The pearls would be the words of your approach. The pearls would be your correction in gentleness and respect, but your correction nonetheless. You're like, you know, I'm really concerned because I see this thing. 
in your life, and it's really interfering with your walk with God. I, I mean, and, and I just, I, I, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to see it clearly. I'm not trying to take the plank and whack you in the face with it, but out of love for you now, because now my thing is not out of anger or out of personal justification. Now it's simply out of compassion. This thing concerns me. And there are going to be those that are going to be like, wow, I didn't see that. And there are going to be those like, Whoa, 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 whoa. And you know, the moment it starts revving, you should just grab your pearls and run. Well, what is it? You're casting very precious things before an animal that cannot see the value in them. There's the problem. They just don't see it. I mean, unless it's something they can eat, a pig, this is a pig's taste, unless it's something they can eat, it has no benefit to them. And there are times where you're going to be sitting with someone and it's like, look it, out of love for you, this is my concern, this is the thing I'm seeing. And it erupts into this thing where now it's sort of like you're running from the pen. It's like now it's a full-on brigade coming at you where really the intent from the beginning was, I'm just trying to help here. And Jesus says, now be careful. But I get this as well. Sometimes the problem is the prodigal. Do you remember where the prodigal son was right before he repented? He was with the pigs. I I can't help but put that together and think, wow. You know that moment where you kind of got a little something and you got you somewhere, so now you're kind of surrounded yourself. You've got, you know, we used to call them beer friends. You know what that means? As long as you have beer, you have friends. You know, but the moment the beer runs out, so do your friends. And, you know, it's like you've got this thing and now everybody's kind of surrounding you and you're kind of popular and then the money runs out and everything else runs out with it now. There ain't any girls anymore involved in this. There ain't any friends involved in this anymore. And now all the cred- the only person that's calling you is your creditors. And, and, you know, and you're like stuck in this place and then you're hating it. You hate life. You hate life because look at what it is. It's pigs. And it's like, and you're so hungry that, that, the, that the refuse pile, that the recycle, the food recycle, you would flip that thing over because that's what pigs were eating. You'd flip open that food recycle thing down the street somewhere of someone you hadn't met and you'd want to eat from it. Could you imagine being that hungry? I wouldn't want to eat from my own food recycle and I know the food that's been in that. He's like, he was so hungry. He looked at that and he went, oh man, I would do that. And he finally went, what am I doing here? What is this? You know, my, the servants in my dad's house have it better off than this. I mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, look at, I know I'm not worthy to be a son. But I'm going to at least say, can, can you just hire me as a servant? I just, listen, listen, listen. I just want to be in the house. That's all I really want. I just want to be in your house again. Dad, I just want to be in your house. And when you see genuine repentance... That's what you kind of see. I just want to be with my dad, and I just want to be in his house again. I don't want to just be like out there hanging out with the pigs and the, the slop and the filth and feeling like I'm the cleanest thing here. And at that point, he still, as messed up as he was, he was the cleanest thing among the, the pigs and the slop. He was just a mess. Look, at for sometimes what it is is that we have to be aware of where we're at with the pigs I mean, sometimes we have to realize, are we in a position where we can't even take the compassion that's offered to us? In some cases, the issue was we need to get away from the pigs. We just need to get away from that. And how do I know what a pig is? Well, according to this, it's something that has no interest in the pearls of God. I mean, you start opening up the Bible and they're like, shut up about that. What is that? Stupid. And it was affecting your heart. You are seeing the world in such a beautiful way and somebody steps in and says, oh, you don't understand. And they dump their filth all over you and they want you to eat it. As we go to prayer, <coughs> I'm going to read you a few verses. In Proverbs 26:11 again, as a dog returns to his own vomit, so does a fool go to his own folly. Isaiah 56:11 says that dogs 
or like these these individuals were like greedy dogs which never have enough. In Luke 16:21 it was the dogs that licked the beggar's sores. But in Revelation 22:15 when he talks about the place that's safe with him he says outside that's not heaven that's not the new Jerusalem outside are dogs and sorcerers sexually immoral murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie and God doesn't want that for you God's like look at sometimes you need to rescue somebody from the pigs sometimes you just have to get away from them yourself because it isn't just that you're going to be wasting your time and the pearls will get trampled, but they're going to turn on you. And when they turn on you, one thing I've learned about pigs as well is when one pig starts to turn, it grabs other pigs and they all start to come at you. Now, I'm not a farm boy, by any means. I'm a city boy through and through. But I've been in those circumstances and I've watched a friend of ours who's quite the farmer the moment one pig turned, they fled. And this was a big, kind of scary guy. And I'm like, what's the deal? It's one pig. He's like, oh, no, it's not. Watch. And the moment one pig turned, the rest of the pigs joined them. I get the whole, all of them jumping off the cliff like lemurs, you know, in with the, with the demon story. Because truth be told, pigs tend to do this. And I get it. The moment you start seeing this and you, you know, you're kind of trying to offer this and you're trying to help and they turn. It's like all of a sudden it's amazing how that turns into a crowd so quickly. And it's like God's, God's like, don't do it. Just don't. Just don't do it. Well, how do I know? Well, throw a pearl. See where it starts. The moment you start seeing those things trampled, get out. Here's the good news. This all started because we were all hopeless individuals. And God so loved us, he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross so that all of our crimes could be paid for. All of our filth could be washed. All of our mistakes could be covered. And God proved it by raising him from the dead so that we know that it isn't we just worship a God who died for us. We worship a Savior who died and a resurrected, resurrected Lord who offers us new life. He says, whoever is in him is a new creation. And here's my question to you. Have you said yes to that, God? Because without it, all of this stuff will be probably nonsense to you. And today you're in a place where you're going to be stuck in a place of choice. Are you going to say, will you say yes to this? I mean, God wants today permission to bring revolution in your heart. He wants to totally ravish you in such a way that you are made brand new. But for that to happen, he's simply asking your permission. But if you have said yes, and you want to step forward and be that disciple and follow him and become more like him, what you're saying is I'm committing to this relationship. And in committing to this relationship, then I ask you to pull from me the things that don't look like you, which will definitely include a heart to condemn and judge others. Things, we say, yeah, that's wrong. That's, that's clearly wrong. And anyone who partakes in it is wrong. I'm wrong when I partake in that. But isn't that what we want, is to be that honest? Interesting, he calls him a hypocrite. Fourth time he's used that word. The last two was when you, get, when you gave, you prayed, or you fasted in such a way that other people saw instead of doing it for the right reasons. He's like, you know, this, I get that, how that's an actor. Here, it's like, you know how this is an actor? You're acting like you're a better and you're doing the same thing. But I understand why Jesus would say, well, what you want other people to do to you, you should do that to them first. And what I would want is people to love me enough to see me restored if I were being that stupid. And I want to be that way for you as well. Isn't that what real friends do? Isn't that what family should do? So beware of the dogs that would turn and tear you to pieces. For the swine that would rather drag you into the, to the dirt. For the dogs that would rather gather their pack. A dog is normally not as dangerous until it's in a pack anyways. Normally. But to say, you know what? I want to be a restorer. Well, to be a restorer, we first need to be restored. And if you are restored, then God grant us that next step. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of this text. I thank you for where you've taken us. I thank you, Lord, that your desire has always been for us to be restored to you. So much so that though you are the one we offended, you still chose to pay our debt. I mean, 
if there's anybody that has a case to condemn, it's you. We have sin, so we can't cast the first stone. You're sinless, but you never did cast the first stone. And you've given us that choice. You've given us the option to say yes to you, to let you transform us. And we recognize, Lord, if we say no, we can't blame you for that. You gave us the choice. But if we do say yes, we recognize what you're going to do is revolutionize us in such a way that you will use us as an agent of restoration for others to see them properly walk with you. (coughs) And I recognize, Lord, that we could easily downplay our own planks in such a way that we can't see clearly. When we can't see clearly, we could really make big deals out of little things and little deals out of our own big deals. But that's not what you want. You do not want anything in between us and you. You don't want anything there. And that's my prayer right now. For every person here who's called on your name, for every person here who has said Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. I believe he died for me and rose again. And I give my life to you. For every person who said that, make us people now who have as a primary core our relationship with you being the most important thing in our life and that nothing's to interfere with that. Anything that interferes with our personal walk with you, remove, restructure, do what you need to do. Reform. But then as that is the case and our heart is proper and it's standing with you, well then clearly the next thing will be our heart desiring other people to have a right walk with you with nothing between them and you. That could even be us. So show us when our involvement's better and show us when our removal is better. But God, we also pray for design, divine discernment to know when we're casting our pearls before swine. And you tell us, Lord, that a person who seeks to offer correction to a mocker will only receive abuse. And I pray that we would be ones that in no way would resemble the pig or the dog, but with a heart to see restoration. Not building cases, but seeing lives transform. And here in this room, finally, if there's anyone who has never said yes to the gift of Jesus or isn't sure, they can be today. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I call out to you right now, believing that Jesus died for me and rose again. I know that Jesus paid my price on the cross so that all of my crimes in my heart could be punished. But as he rose again, just as scripture promised on the third day, he offers to be now the reinventor of my new life. And I say yes. Please, have me now. Make me yours. I belong to you. In Jesus' name. And if that's your prayer today, I ask you to say, Amen. So, Lord, now I just pray as we go through the rest of this day, make us people who make right. And thank you. Bless this precious fellowship. For you are so good. In Jesus' name. Amen.